All right. Good morning, everyone. So I had asked Dad, I said, did you finish funny last time? Because I had to duck out and do something. That was funny. All right. So we're going to be in um, 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. So... Um, Off and on in this class, I've used the phrase chronological snobbery. Um, and that is that going through time, we start to think that we're smarter than people in the past. And um, uh, sometimes we find out that that is not necessarily true. Um, this passage that if we finish up uh, Second Samuel, and, and we may, beginning with chapter 21 all the way through chapter 24, by some commentators, even as recent as, say, 20 or 30 years ago, um, considered this section uh, to be an appendix, to be uh, a group of stories not necessarily in chronological order like the whole rest of First and Second Samuel has been, uh, but an appendix tacked on uh, at the end uh, with just some information that maybe didn't fit anywhere else in, in the rest of the books. And they kind of felt like maybe the scribes had just um, kind of stuck it there because it didn't fit, but it was just kind of important stories that they wanted to include. As more recently, um, they started to give this some more thought. So, well, you know, not so fast. Those, those scribes back in the day, they may have known what they were doing after all, and it may have served a purpose to have these uh, last chapters uh, be organized the way they were and to have the content that they do. And those that hold this view, which I think given the choice between us um, uh, questioning or perhaps criticizing what the scribes back in the day did, um, given that they are in the Bible after all, and given the fact that there is a way to see purpose in the way things are, I'm, a, I'm drawn to any theory that is going to hold that in higher esteem. Uh, so that's the approach that we're going to take. And the general concept is, and I'll try to highlight where this makes uh, a difference, is that the whole point of First and Second Samuel was to show this arc of um, what does it mean when you really want a king. Remember, we, we looked at this concept early on in First Samuel where the people were threatened by the surrounding territories. They said, we want a king. We want a king like all those other nations have, right? And it, it almost sounds immature to, to put it that way or to phrase it that way, but, but in essence, that's what they were doing. Remember, they had gone through, you know, years and years of direct leadership through Moses and then Joshua and then uh, through all the judges. Uh, the concept was, God is your king and there's going to be a basically a mouthpiece 
to tell you what God wants you to do, how he wants you to behave, and how best to relate to him. And that was the concept that was God's idea. That was, I guess, his second try at interacting with us. His first try was just walking in the garden. Um, we botched that. Um, and then the second effort was, okay, I'm going to speak through my divine appointed person. Um, and then we rejected that, or at least the nation of Israel did, and said, no, we want a king. So remember, God told Samuel, um, okay, give them, give them what they asked for. And what they got was Saul. And the comparison of these last few chapters is going to be between David and Saul. And the whole point is to show um, what is it like when you really have a covenantal king. Um, if you want a king, okay, but here's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be um, a king on behalf of the people keeping the covenants with God. Um, as one commentator said, unlike our politicians nowadays where we turn a blind eye to what they do outside of their official role, and we want them to at least do a decent job in their official capacity. In this day, God wanted you all the way. He wanted your private life and your public life to be dedicated and consistent with his plan. And so as we look at these sections, which, you know, in fairness to the commentators uh, of a few years back, do kind of sound somewhat disjointed uh, but the, the notion here is that it shows what is a covenantal king supposed to look like. And then kind of a subheading to that is to compare um, David's efforts at fulfilling that role versus Saul's efforts at fulfilling that role. And even though David wasn't perfect by a long shot, and we see evidences of that, the theme that comes back is that David knew where his strength came from, David knew who to go to when things weren't right. David knew how to confess his sin. David knew how to make reconciliation when things went bad. Uh, David knew how to share credit where credit was due. And we'll see elements of that uh, all through this. And um, at least I hope we do. All right. And we're going to go, we're going to literally hit the high spots on some of this. Thankfully, I know you guys often read ahead, and, um, and that's awesome. All right, chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord. So there we have one evidence right there. Things were not going well, and this, by the way, even though um, I said there's a reason why these stories show up where they where they do collectively um, it is true that these are not in chronological order right uh, so many of these events did happen at other points uh, throughout um, David's reign but they're collected here to, to make a point um, but but they did happen before so at some point in his administration uh, there was a famine in the days of David for three years year after year and 
David sought the face of the Lord. So this shows evidence right there that David knew who to turn to when things were not going well. He knew um, who would have the answers, and he knew uh, where the strength came from. And look what it says. And by the way, there are so many questions I have from this chapter um, that we are not told about. It says, And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. So the background here, if you want to read this, this is back in Joshua chapter 9. Now you remember Joshua um, was, you know, Moses brought them to the edge of the promised land. Joshua was charged with taking them into the promised land, wiping out all the inhabitants that were there, and occupying it and claiming it as a promised land for the nation of Israel, right? They had come in, one of their early conquests was the town of Jericho, right? That was quite the victory. Uh, the walls came a-tumbling down, remember? And uh, it reverberated, if not, if not literally, figuratively, to all the surrounding areas. And there was a city of Gibeon that heard what was going on. And they, they knew they couldn't fight against this. So they basically came to Joshua and said, hey, um, we're all with you. Uh, we have heard how great and mighty the God of Israel is, and, um, and, and we want to be your friends. And, um, and, and Joshua said, well, well you, you, you might just live here, and maybe you're just saying that, and uh, we're supposed to wipe you out because if you live here, you're not going to be living here anymore. I said, no, 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 that's not us. We've traveled from afar because we heard just how wonderful the God of Israel is. And we're just here to be your servants. And, and we're just, we're all about serving the, your God. Because we've heard how marvelous things that have been done. Well, Joshua, and it says in scripture, without consulting the Lord, said, you know, this is Okay. So they hung out for about three days, and a treaty came of this, and the, the Gibeonites uh, got the deal, you won't kill us. That was, that was the deal. And in exchange, uh, we're going we're gonna to be your friends and do what you tell us to do. Well, then Joshua finds out that they did live there and that he had been deceived. And so he stuck by his promise, said, okay, I'm not going to kill you, but you're going to have to like chop wood for all of our sacrifices. And uh, they said, well, okay, fine. Fine, just don't kill us. Well, Gibeon, Jericho, remember, if we're looking at our typical map, um, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and they came from the east. And there's the Jordan River. They crossed from east to west across. And one of the earliest places they, they landed was uh, there in Jericho. Well, Gibeon was not far across the river too. What so happens that when everything got reallocated to the different tribes, that was the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Who came from the tribe of Benjamin? Saul. Well, somehow Saul must have had a beef with the Gibeonites, and in a part of his reign, he killed some of them. We find out that is why there was a famine in the land. 
had a long way to get there, right? Um, the Lord said, David sought the face of the Lord, and now I'm back in 2 Samuel 21. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of Amorites. And although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had, struck, had sought to strike them down in the zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. David said to the Gibeonites, how can we make this right? And they said, well, you know, they were pretty, pretty smart people back then. They said, well, you know, it's not for us to tell you how to make this right. You know, it's not for us to tell you how to, who to kill and how much money is going to be owed and everything. But, and no, David said, well, who to make it right? And, and basically the deal is give us seven sons of Saul to be put to death, lest there be no um, confusion. And David says, okay. If that's what it takes, that's what it takes. He gathers up seven sons of Saul that were still alive. He spared Mephibosheth, who was, remember, the son of Jonathan, but um, has always kind of had a carve out there because of the uh, covenant that he had with, John, um, with Jonathan. And that settled the story. There's an interesting story there about the mom of a couple of the sons and how she um, basically honors the the bodies of this, her sons that have been killed and and kind of fights off the buzzards uh, until the rain comes. And um, David's somewhat moved by that. And uh, again, because of his, you know, somewhat begrudging perhaps respect for Saul, um, gives them all a proper burial. He goes and gets the bones of Jonathan and Saul and um, and buries all the sons together. So, so that's that. And then there's no longer a famine. Now in verse 15, there was war again with the Philistines and Israel. So, um, you know, those, those darn Philistines. Um, so here we have, um, uh, I'd, in my notes, I titled chapter 21, Gibeonites and Goliaths. So we talked about the Gibeonites. So these are Goliaths. Um, Goliath's brother, um, we find if we compare the the king's uh, version of this, um, gets killed in a in a later battle. Uh, he's also a really big guy, and his cousins are also really big guys. Some of them who have six fingers and six toes. I thought that was hilarious, um, which that does happen sometimes. You probably have seen some people with six fingers, um, including that guy from The Princess Bride. Um, <laughs> Uh, in any event, um, they wiped them out. The interesting thing here is that uh, they, the, the, the commanders say, David, uh, basically, you need to kind of back away from the heat of the battle here because if something happens to you, uh, you are the light of Israel. Uh, this is in uh, verse 17. Uh, so one of these guys comes to attack David and it says, but Abishai, the son of Zariah, this Abishai is Joab's little brother, I think, um, came to Zaid and attacked Philistine and killed him. And David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. So that lamp of Israel. So already his entourage is recognizing that God is blessing Israel in part because of David's commitment. Uh, 
Now, in chapter 22, uh, we have a, a really long and beautiful section. It's basically uh, Psalm 18. And the, the way this was nicely explained is that here in 2 Samuel 22, we have David um, and his you know, outpouring of, of, of um, uh, prayer or whatever to God. Uh, Psalm 18, they say this is where that speech or that utterance, whatever, has been uh, tidied up for the purpose of public worship. You know, the Psalms were there uh, to be used for, for worship. And so this is the informal version. Uh, apparently the Hebrew is written in such a way that it sounds good to the ear but it's not necessarily really tidy in terms of written prose, whereas Psalm 18 is is the uh, the edited version, so to speak. And that's what this is. And we'll just read parts of it. Uh, verse 2, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge. My Savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I am saved from my enemies. And in the title there, we have that um, that this is um, uh, from when he was in those wilderness days, when he was running from Saul, when he literally was uh, hiding um, from Saul, but hiding in God, so to speak. And we talked about this a few weeks ago where we said, you know, um, Often when we sin, uh, we hide from God, when really the proper thing to do is to hide in God. And uh, here we have um, David talking about that, you know, waves of death encompassed me and destruction assailed me and so forth. Um, just just words of praise. Um, verse 17, he sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy. From those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Again, this is put there on purpose, showing that um, David saw that his um, the the light, you might say, this lamp of Israel that his men saw, it was not directly from him. It was like the moon; it was reflected light, and he's giving credit to God as the source of all of his help. Um, verse 21, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me for I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God for his rules were before me from his statutes. I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him and I kept myself from guilt and he has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness in his sight. No big surprise here. This appears to take place before the events of Bathsheba and Uriah. And I think it, you know, it would not be surprising that when Nathan confronted David with his sin, these words probably came, that David himself had put out there, probably came back to him in a especially uh, self-incriminating way that I'm not so blameless now. Uh, and so his confession takes on even more meaning when we realize that that in this some maybe you might think of it as somewhat of an a not completely matured relationship with God. He seemed to understand God's providence toward him on the basis of how good he was, right? 
and we tend to do that too sometimes we think as long as we're doing good stuff then God has favor on us right we still do this even as Christians we still do this um, and we misbehave um, we think we have to do better to kind of make God like us again um, but David after he confesses and after he receives forgiveness now he has a restored relationship with God and he understands he loves me because of who I am and because of my relationship with him not because I've been a good person because I haven't been a good person right and so uh, here we have this kind of a almost like a youthful understanding of how a person might relate to God and now we know that no that's not how it works um, God loves us because he chooses us um, not because he thought we were you know all that verse 26 with the merciful you show yourself merciful with the blameless and you show yourself blameless you deal with people purely just I mean we could probably spend a few weeks just on this Verse 32, for who is God but the Lord and who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and he has made my way blameless. Again, calling people to focus on who God is, what he's done for them. Um, and remember, this would have been really, this is different king stuff, right? Uh, this is not how Saul handled things. Saul was all about um, a little glory to himself. Uh, and certainly the surrounding kings of the other countries would have been uh, focused on themselves. Remember we talked about the king that had the crown that weighed 75 pounds or whatever. Um, it was about bringing glory to themselves. And here we have this picture of a different kind of a king um, because he's just turning everything toward God. Verse 50, for this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. So David's relationship with God probably started as he was a youth interacting with, with uh, uh, the world um, taking care of those sheep and guarding them with, against the wild animals. And then when Samuel came along, he was anointed and he understood right then that that was a special relationship. And then we have acknowledgement in this very last couple of phrases, um, steadfast love to his anointed is somewhat prophetic because he's going he's gonna to learn in a few years just how steadfast the love of the Lord is in spite of his own trips and then it says David and his offspring forever. So some acknowledgement of the Davidic covenant. Chapter 23. The last words of David. It says the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the spirit of the Lord speaks by me that was a preamble verse 2 the spirit of the lord speaks by me his word is on my tongue the god of israel has spoken the rock of israel has said to me when one rules justly over men ruling in the fear of god he dawns on them like the morning light 
like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Um, again, this this picture of light and the those uh, scribes who and historians who are writing this, you know, they know how to tell a story. So you start to see this theme come through about who is the light of Israel? Where is that coming from? Uh, what are the benefits of that? And we have... Um, the God of Israel that speaks on them, and he uses the metaphor of light, the morning light, like sun shining forth on a cloudless morning. Verse 5, For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear. They are utterly consumed with fire. Um, nobody can stand against my God. And as evidenced by this second half of this chapter, which at first glance doesn't seem like they go together, but he's saying here, as I look back over my life, it wasn't about me. It was about God. And it wasn't all credit to me. I had help. I had big help. And he goes to enumerate these mighty men of David. And beginning in chapter 8, there's this mighty men of David. And there's three that get special mention. This Joshua Bashabeth says, was the chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. That's a lot, Right? That is a lot. And these people weren't just, you know, this sounds really gross. It would be really, really hard to kill 800 of anything. It'd be hard to kill 800 chickens, right? You'd be tired. Can you imagine killing 800 men who don't want to be killed, right? Not that the chickens want to be killed, but 800 men who are fighting back. The, the only example greater than this was Samson who killed a thousand. So he's right up there, right? Um, clearly this was some sort of supernatural infusion of strength. Uh, then we have uh, this n next guy um, who uh, fought off a bunch of uh, Philistines. And then we have this third guy, which, you know, is pretty amazing. He defends a plot of lentils. Do you like lentils? I, I like lentils. I'm not sure I'd die for them. <laughs> or even a field that grew them. But he defended this plot of lentils against the Philistines, which, you know, is pretty amazing. So those top three. And then there or dozens more, um, and you know this is this is you know if you made the list, then this is evidence where David is calling you out, saying, "Well done, um, I had help from some amazing people." Chapter twenty-four. Now you're going to think this is a this is a crazy way. To finish a book. But it kind of fits with the theme. So let's, we'll read this. This is just interesting. 
Verse 24, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Now, <laughs> we've done enough the Old Testament study that this is not that surprising, right? That the scribes are saying, once again, the people of Israel have made God mad. And there we have it. But this was interesting. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go number Israel and Judah. So this is interesting. So, so if we take the story from this perspective, it says God is mad with the nation of Israel and causes David to take a census. Okay? Strange already, right? Now, even stranger, if we go to the king's account of this, it says Satan told David to make a census. Okay, so the best rationalization of this is that we have somewhat of a Job situation, right? Where God, in his sovereignty, allowed Satan to torment Job for his own purposes, right? Here, the way you make sense of this is that God, in his sovereignty, allowed Satan to cause David to sin, and the sin was taking a census. Now, we're not really told here why that was such a bad thing. We know that there were times when Moses was told to take a census. So it wasn't that counting the people was a bad thing, but there must have been some weird motive behind it, as we'll see. So anyway, like I said, there's a lot, I've, got lots of, I've got questions without answers. It says, uh, he incited David against him, saying, go number Israel and Judah. Now, this is interesting, right? So already we're having this Israel versus Judah thing, right? There's, that's going to be a, a theme later on if we were to, to have gone there uh, because there's going to be a division among um, a civil war, so to speak, between the north and the south. Uh, it says, Go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? In other words, you know, God bless you, David. I hope I hope there's just, you know, I, I wish all the best for you. I, you know, I, I wish the numbers are huge. But why are you doing this? Verse 4, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. By the way, we've talked about Joab a lot. I think there's actually probably more that we've left on the table about them. It would be a very interesting little topic study um, to go through and to really kind of figure out the connection between Joab and David. I think it might be something that someone that was interested in leadership uh, would do, but uh, it was interesting because Joab, on the one hand, he he seemed to have the same general interests as David and certainly seemed to support him, but it seems like his opinion was he, he never quite thought David got it right, right? 
he always thought his way of handling things might have been a little bit better. And I think he thought that he needs me so much I can get away with it, right? Oh, he'll be fine with it. You know, it's the whole, it's easier to ask forgiveness than permission sort of thing. Uh, But it's an interesting relationship between the two of them. In any event, so here we are back in verse 4. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to the number of the people of Israel across the Jordan. And anyway, I won't go through the geography, but they go through the whole land. They make a, I mean, they, they cover it. Verse 8, so when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. Verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. In other words, well, you can see the next verse. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Okay, I don't know, again, we don't know why this was such a bad thing. Maybe it was a pride thing. I've got a, this is just me, you know, taking a swing at this. I'm wondering if he was wondering whether he needed to maybe take some sort of action against the the northern part to bring them back closer into the fold maybe he sensed that they were somewhat independent, that they weren't really following him as much as they should have. And then he finds out that he's outnumbered. So that plan kind of gets squashed. And now he's realizing, well, that probably wasn't such a good idea to begin with. I shouldn't have started this whole affair. That's my take. I have zero commentary support for that. But, you know, that kind of makes sense. Anyway. He says, verse 10, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And David arose in the morning. And the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord. So, here we have the contrast. Remember when Saul was reprimanded? What was his typical thing? He would say, oh, I misunderstood. Oh, to Samuel, who told him like he was supposed to wait for the sacrifice and then didn't, didn't wait the full seven days, even though Samuel said, I'll be there in seven days. And he's, oh, well, you know, I didn't think you were coming, right? So I just, I thought I'd take care of it myself. It was always blame, <coughs> give lip service without a heart change. You know, oh, David, yeah, I know I meant to kill you, but yeah, no, it's it's fine. Yeah, I know you could have killed me and I should be grateful for that, but no, we're fine. And then, of course, next thing you know, he's back after David again, right? He never really has a heart change. Here we have David, when he realizes he messes up, what does he do? He... <coughs> He, 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 he has a conscience, right? Um, I'm not sure what the Old Testament version of the Holy Spirit is for his personal conscience is concerned, but in any event, he knows that he's wrong. It says, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad. So this is a different um, uh, person in this role. David's seer, or David's 
prophet, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. Okay, so you get to pick your punishment. This is interesting. <laughs> I'm not sure what theological significance it has, but it's interesting. You can have three years of famine. You can, you can be on the run for three years. Or you can have three days of plague and pestilence. Well, the three years of famine, he's been there, done that, right? We already saw that. And that affects everyone. He says you could be on the run for three months, which you would think might be the most self-sacrificial way to go because that just affects him, right? And if I'm reading that right, you, or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? The only thing I fear here is that he's got PTSD because Saul was after him for so many times and he doesn't ever want to be on the run again. Or shall there be three days of pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So in other words, I picked plague for three days. And what I'm counting on is that God is going to be merciful. Which is not a bad default position to take. And in fact, that is what happens. I'll speed up here. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time, and there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. Now, we realize there was 1.3 million, is that right? 800,000 to 500,000 men who were of fighting age, not counting women and children. So 70,000 generally, it could have been worse, I guess. Verse 16, And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people. Now that's weird right there, right? Not since Egypt have we seen an angel whose task it is to kill people. I mean, that's just strange. God, And he says, It is enough. Stay your hand. And the angel Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? In other words, my people. Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. So he, he tries to intercede here, which again is evidence of a good king. And again, we see this contrast. You know, And think about this. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand be against me and against my father's house. It goes on down. At this site, he, he memorializes by purchasing um, the land. Um, and it later becomes the site of the temple. All right? So think about this. This is going to be the site of the temple where there will be sacrifices, where there will be praise, where God and his magnificence will be proclaimed. That temple will also be destroyed. We've got future prophecy about the temple being rebuilt. And before the temple is built, you've got this thing. I've sinned, I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. So if we think of this big theme... Uh, First and Second Samuel being 
what is a covenantal king supposed to look like, we start to we see a picture of this at the very end of a king who is at the point of wanting to intercede for his people because he looks at these sheep who are not deserving this punishment, his people, and he's wanting to take that punishment upon himself so that they will be spared. That looks forward hundreds of years later to Jesus, the ultimate David, who when he was looking out as his sheep, who had done wrong, who were sinners, but yet he also said, let your vengeance be upon me, basically. So that wraps up 2 Samuel, right? And um, this is one of those, I think, passages where the appropriate way to take it is is from a big picture standpoint to see what themes are being talked about. And so there we go. Comments? Yeah? Let me say this about next week.